This is a HeadGum Podcast. Welcome to the Jeff Rubin, Jeff Rubin Show. I am Jeff Rubin, and today on the Skype of my phone is Justin Knapp. He has over 1.8 million edits to Wikipedia, putting him at number two on the all-time list. Justin, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be chatting with you. I want to get a sense of your history with Wikipedia before we talk about editing it. Do you remember the first time you saw Wikipedia? I actually do, yeah. I believe it was a product of it being posted to Slashdot, and there were, I don't remember exactly why it was posted to Slashdot, but Slashdot is a kind of early web 2.0 website that focused on technology news. It's still around today. Uh, it's not necessarily as big or as popular as it was in, say, 2003, but it's still a good resource, and I saw that they had posted some kind of story about Wikipedia, and so I found that website. That's my recollection. So I, I, that's how I recall getting to it. But I know that either way, the first thing that I found when I started looking up things were lists of countries and lists of flags. That was just kind of interesting to me. And I recall those were the first couple of things kind of related to lists of politics and stuff like that that I found on Wikipedia. And so I can remember kind of what the layout of the site looked like and kind of what I was looking up and why I was there in the first place. And I even had, at the time, some printouts, because I didn't have internet access at home, so I just had it through the university. I had some printouts that I kept for several years, uh, just in a big stack of school stuff from old Wikipedia web pages. I actually did end up tossing them a couple years back or recycling them. But that was how I first got introduced to it. So it sounds like, I mean, if there were printouts, it sounds like you were at least a little bit taken with it pretty quickly. Yeah, I thought it was a pretty cool resource, and I didn't necessarily understand the values or what it meant, you know, exactly what it means for it to be a free encyclopedia anyone can edit, but I did think it was a cool resource at the very least. I thought this is a cool website, and I just kind of indexed it somewhere in the back of my head that this is a cool website to check out, and I just kind of checked it out more times in the future when other things interested me, and then so my interest in the site and also the expansion of the site happened to coincide. So I wasn't one of the earliest users from 2001 or 2002. So I came to it when it already had some content, but it also was growing and expanding at a pretty rapid rate around the time when I was introduced to it. So every time I would come back, it would be something and new. And how long after that did you start editing it? That's also a good question. So again, I'm kind of speculating, kind of piecing it together from memory. But... In 2003, I know I viewed the site, so I was using the site, and I can recall when they added things like categories and when they changed the site's layout and the skin to it a couple times. So I can kind of place some of those things, and I can remember, oh, it looks a little different or operates a little differently now. But I know that I started editing it in 2004. So originally I edited it just as an IP address, so without having a login, which is something that you can still do today. Anyone can edit without an, uh, uh, a username or a login. And then I know that I made my login in 2005. So it was kind of a slow process of me using the site to editing to getting a username and being a little bit more invested in editing. And 
like, what made you go from someone who thought, oh, this is a cool resource to someone who actually wanted to start contributing to it? I didn't realize exactly what it was or who built it or who wrote it. I just knew it was something that existed. And I think at some point, I guess I realized that it was kind of written by committee or written through consensus of some kind, but it didn't necessarily understand the dynamics of it or really realize that it was something I could contribute to. And I was familiar with message boards and, of course... Message boards are another kind of artifact of older web experience. Slashdot, one of the one of the first big message boards. Yeah, a huge message board. I'd been on something awful. Um, yep. I'd been introduced to that about 1999 or so. Had a really huge forum. Um, and DC Comics webpage, you know, they had a big forum for talking about comic books, that sort of thing. So that was kind of a big thing that, that evolved from BBSs and Usenet and earlier kind of pre-web internet communication. So I, I thought it was kind of like that. And it's similar in some respects, but it's also different. In, in a message board or Usenet post or those sorts of older forms of communication, you post something and I post something else, and they're kind of threaded together. So we can all kind of collaborate on one document or one discussion or thread, but you have your own distinct contribution and I have another one underneath it. And the real value of the wiki model that Ward Cunningham founded in 95, 96, was that you can post something, but I can change the thing you posted. So it's not just adding to, it's also remixing and moving around and forking and creating different versions of. And so it really wasn't the same thing as what I kind of thought it was or what I was exposed to prior. It wasn't like a message board where Jeff posts something and I post something else and we kind of add up to make a some thing. It's something where Jeff posts something, and I can change what he posted, and he can add to it or subtract from it and make a second version and that sort of thing. So it just took me a long time to understand that. I didn't come from a background where I had worked on code repositories before. I didn't work on wikis before. So my, my exposure to the Internet was not that there are things where you all collaborate together to produce one document. I was familiar with things like guest books where you posted your own hello message and I posted my own distinct hello message, but we didn't collaborate to make one message altogether. Um, you just said something that I think people will be surprised about, which is that someone who is not Jimmy Wales invented wikis in the 90s. What were, who was that and what were the, the original applications of wikis? Right, well, Ward Cunningham, I, I don't know him, never met him, and I don't necessarily um, know biography of him as such, but I do know that Ward Cunningham is a person who was based, I think, out of Portland, I think he still is, here in the United States, and he is a computer programmer, and or software engineer, or whatever his exact term of art is, and he was on a bus tour, as I recall, a bus tour in Hawaii, and in Hawaiian, they have a, a word, which is wiki, and that word means quick or fast. And he was on this bus tour that was called, like, you know, Wiki Bus or something. And at some point, he got in his head that he wanted to make a, a kind of message board or forum to discuss extreme programming. And again, I'm not someone who has even that much of a technical background, so I couldn't really speak to exactly what makes extreme programming different from regular programming. Um, maybe it has something to do with, like, you know, uh, soul patches or, you know, X games. I don't know what it is. But... It was some method of programming that was supposed to be more efficient or faster or better somehow. And he created a wiki to discuss what was extreme programming and possible methods and best practices and that sort of thing. So he came up with this software that allowed different contributors who didn't have usernames. So it wasn't as quite as complicated as the wiki software you'll see at Wikipedia. 
um, to collaborate together and write one document all together. And his first wiki is sometimes just called Ward's Wiki, or it's sometimes called C2 Wiki because the website was called c2.com, that sort of thing. And so it was a pretty small thing, and I think he made like his own software for it, which I think was called UseMod Wiki at the time, and it used a different way of creating links. And so there were some technical things that made it slightly different. But you're right, by the time that Jimmy Wales and Bomus, which was a company he worked for, and Larry Sanger put together Wikipedia, they didn't invent the first iteration of that software. They weren't the first persons to use some wiki software, although it was pretty novel at the time. So again, I think Ward's wiki was like 95, 96, and then Wikipedia launched very early in 2001. It was in January 2001. So they'd been around for a couple of years, and there had been a couple of other wikis that had been founded, but it was still pretty novel as an idea. And in the same way that you remember the first time you saw Wikipedia looking at that list of flags, looking at that list of countries, do you remember the first edits you committed to Wikipedia? Yeah, that's also a good question. I think that the first edits I really made had to do with probably Western Sahara and uh, the Republic of China and Taiwan. And I know that the first thing that I really got interested in or the reason I made a username and started to really contribute in, in kind of earnest was because I wanted to discuss the political situation in Western Sahara. So I know that that was kind of the impetus, or that was the first thing that interested me. So that's a pretty big one. That's not like, uh, you know, list of George Clooney movies or anything. That's like um, probably a fairly controversial topic, right? Well, it, it is and it isn't. On the one hand, you know, I think it's an important issue. I think it's politically important. Uh, I think it's a real humanitarian issue. On the other hand, it's not necessarily something that you're going to hear about in the news. So, for instance, you know, you could turn on the news right now and you can read about some some terrible thing that happened in Syria or what's going on in Israel-Palestine and these really huge geopolitical conflicts, but you won't see anything about the Moroccan occupation of Western Sahara. So that was that was actually exactly the, the the intersection is there's something that's kind of important and I think it's something that should be discussed or should others should know about. But on the other hand, it's something that isn't that, uh, doesn't have as much noise, doesn't have as much coverage. So it was a good intersection point of something that I thought, well, I can contribute to this. And it's also something that hasn't been kind of beaten to death or there aren't really a lot of very strong opinions in the general populace because a lot of persons just don't know about it. So it's not like I'm jumping into some debate about gun control or something, which is an important issue, sure, but it's not something where I really have very much to add. After you had left that edit did you immediately think like wow what a feeling i feel like i contributed i think i could do a lot of this or did you think it was like one and done i did think it was pretty interesting i thought that the the funny thing about it to me was that it was cool to see how it was there immediately and i could show it to others too so i can remember how i actually well let me back up I thought it was cool that I saw something I'd made and it was kind of reflected back to me and that is kind of neat. But again, I, I wasn't entirely shocked by that. I'd been on the web before and I'd done some stuff on the web. So that that itself wasn't necessarily that surprising. There were two things that I thought were pretty interesting and made that different. One is after I had made a login, one of the first few edits I made was also to, I think it was a Syriac Orthodox church, some Eastern Christian church, which again is fairly obscure to Americans. It's not necessarily... Um, that that hot button of a topic or something. And I didn't make that big of an edit either. I made some kind of fairly small, mundane edit. And after I had made a username, someone posted to my talk page and said something about it, said thank you or welcome or something. 
And before, when I was just editing from an IP address, either no one left me a message or I just didn't see it because I didn't have a login, so I didn't come back to my own talk page. You know, I didn't notice if anyone left me a message. And I, it was pretty speedy, and I thought, wow, that's crazy that someone else even noticed that I did something. That was the difference between, say, working on Wikipedia and a message board, was a lot of times on a message board, either no one sees it, or the sort of person who sees it is the sort of person who's already on the message board. And it seemed like, in a lot of message boards, you kind of knew everybody, and those communities are pretty tight-knit. But this is something different, where everyone's kind of supposed to see it. So the idea is to spread it as much as possible. So that was kind of interesting. And then the second thing that was kind of a, an oh-wow thing early on was... I showed that to others, like my coworkers or my friends. I said, this is really cool. This is this encyclopedia, and everyone can edit it together. And it's this really interesting resource. Like, you don't have to pay for Encarta, which was Microsoft's CD-ROM encyclopedia. And you don't have to pay for Encyclopedia Britannica, which is, you know, a fine publication, but it's pretty expensive print publication. It takes up a lot of shelf space. There's an encyclopedia that... That's being built right now, and I'm contributing to it, and I thought it was a really cool thing to do. And I even recall I showed a, I showed one of my coworkers an article, and I just chose something random, and it was Vietnam. And I recall showing her, hey, check it out, there's this article on Vietnam. And as I pulled it up, someone had replaced almost all the text with racial slurs. And I was like, oh, no, 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 this isn't what you want to see. And I refreshed it, and then by the time I refreshed it, it had been replaced with a proper article again. Yeah. That's the sort of thing that software catches immediately now. You can't really do that anymore. But there was a little bit of a Wild West period where I could show someone Wikipedia and they could say, what is this thing that's just full of garbage? And I could say, no, 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 wait. Just give me four seconds and refresh the page and it'll be fixed again. So how quickly... I mean, I assume to get to how many edits you have gotten to... At some point, it becomes a lifestyle or something where you're working on it, uh, if not daily, at least weekly. Is that right? Yeah, I would say that's definitely fair. I think that editing Wikipedia is a part is an important part of my life on a daily or semi-daily basis, usually daily. So can you take me through how you got from like that first edit to wi- editing Wikipedia is a part of my daily life? Oh, yeah, another good question. Well, I noticed that, again, there were two things. One is... I kind of realized I have something to add over and over again. Like, there are always kind of something to do. Plus, this I got to Encyclopedia at a time when, again, I wasn't the first adopter, but I also wasn't someone who just kind of came in 15 years into it. You know, I'm someone who came in kind of in the second generation, I guess you might call it, of editors. And so there was still some content, but there's also a lot to do. So I've kind of seen most of the growth of the site. Not all of it, but most of the growth of the site. And as new things kind of came and went and that sort of thing. So as there were new developments, there was a new thing to do or a new way to do things or a new thing to discuss or a new angle on things. Um, So there was always something to do. And also, it's a way that I feel like I can contribute and give back, but it's also a hobby and I can basically do it at any time. You know, I I can pick it up and put it down as I feel. Like if my hobby were something like fishing, you know, I'd have to get galoshes and I'd have to go out on water and I'd have to get, you know, poles and the weather would have to be nice and stuff. Or if my if my hobby were, you know, softball or something, there's only so many months out of the year when you can play and you have to get together a group of friends. But if my hobby is just something that basically requires an internet connection, well, you know, in this day and age, it's pretty convenient to have one, uh, right. in my circumstance at least. But how long was it between... Edit number one, and I am editing Wikipedia every day. 
Uh, I mean, this is an empirical question, so I guess I could really go back. But Ooh, even then, I can recall. Yeah, right. Right. If someone really wants to, pour so all one point eight million edits of yours, they're like recorded somewhere. Like we could go through them all and just like look at all one point eight million. If this podcast was, you know, long enough. Yeah, sure. If, it, if someone has the time, or if some three-letter agency thinks I'm enough of a threat, somebody can go through and they can spend a long time kind of looking at a big map of my mind and all these things that made me curious at some point or this thing where I thought this was interesting. And you know, you could definitely do that. But I can recall in my early days, there were a couple times where I got blocked. Actually, several times where I got blocked um, for kind of edit warring and uh, not being civil. Um, so there were times where I couldn't edit. Um, but other than that, basically every time I've been allowed to edit, I've been editing on a daily or semi-daily basis. And that's been since, you know, late 2005 or at least mid-2006. And how much time, like a week, do you spend on editing Wikipedia? Well, that also kind of depends. That, that waxes and wanes depending on mostly how busy I am. So if I'm really busy at work or if I have other stuff going on in my life, then I just kind of get to it kind of before work, after work, at a break, that sort of thing. And if I don't have anything going on and I think, you know, this is a this is a certain task I can do, this is something I can do, then I'll sit down and I'll spend several hours a day. There have been times I've been unemployed and just, you know, kind of was lying in bed and felt depressed and just put on a TV show and kind of went back and forth between editing the encyclopedia and watching TV for 16 hours a day. And that's not necessarily healthy, but that was kind of where my mindset was, and I figured I could do something. I could at least do something constructive while I'm kind of lying in bed feeling like a lump, you know? Did it help? Did it, like, did it give you a sense of purpose or drive or make you feel better? Yeah, sure, sure. It's... On the one hand, again, it's a hobby, so it's just a thing to do. It's, a, you know, kind of something I find fun. It's not necessary for everyone, but it's something that I enjoy, and I feel comfortable in it. You know, I have uh, kind of an understanding of what I'm doing, and I feel like I have some measure of expertise, and I feel like I can do it well. So that's nice. And on the other hand, it is kind of an expression of a set of values I've got. You know, I believe in some of the uh, some of the underlying principles of the encyclopedia and how it works. I believe in community and I believe in free knowledge and free culture and I believe in sharing and that's a way of expressing my values at the same time so it's a really rare opportunity I've got where I can do work that's essentially volunteer work for a nonprofit that I think actually makes the world a better place sometimes in a really small way and to be fair it's pretty sometimes it's very trivial and virtually inconsequential that's definitely true of a lot of the things I've added to the encyclopedia but sometimes it's very helpful to somebody else and could be very useful to another person to actually learn things about the world so that's one hand. On the other hand, it's, you know, a fun thing to do. Do you have a sense of the edit you made or the article you wrote that um, has sort of had the greatest impact, like that you think has probably been seen by the most people? Hmm. This actually is another empirical question. I don't know. Um, I could find statistics on you know, page views and that sort of thing. So I don't really know. That's a good question. I would say that it's just a couple days ago, actually, I was on an internet forum, uh, a kind of a community weblog, and I saw that someone had posted an article. He made a post about a David Byrne album from 2008 because David Byrne recently released an album, and this person was just saying, hey, this is this album he released a decade ago. And when that person made that post, he said, well, here's each track, and you can listen to it all on the internet. But in addition, here's what he called a, a shockingly complete Wikipedia article on that album. So I just happened across it, and I had written that article 10 years ago. Or, you know, I've been in the process of kind of 
editing it for over 10 years now. Uh, that was for the album Everything That Happens Will Happen Today by David Byrne and Brian Eno. So that's one where I just happened across someone else happening across it, and I posted to that forum, if you guys know of anything I can do to make this better, let me know. I haven't got any feedback yet, but you know, I, I see I will see my own work just eventually, sooner or later, because I'll go back to the website, and so I'll see it myself, or someone else will surface it. But your question was, you know, which article or which edit or which thing I've written has maybe had the most eyes on it or had the most impact, and I don't really know, but I know that one that I talk about whenever I have an interview or whenever it's been on the front page is a bibliography of George Orwell, which I compiled. Now, again, it's a collaborative effort, so I didn't write it myself, but I'm pretty responsible for most of the text on there. A lot of it was something that I put together. So there's a pretty extensive bibliography. It's still not perfect. There's still things I've been meaning to do to it for, you know, seven or eight years. Can I ask, what's so hard about putting together a bibliography of George Orwell? Is it not... I'm someone, I don't know a lot about George Orwell beyond like 1984 and Animal Farm, and I've certainly never put together a bibliography. So what, what, what makes that like an ongoing challenge? Um, it's not, there's no central repository of just all the stuff that George Orwell wrote? That's a good question. Well, there are two things. One is there is actually an excellent repository of everything he wrote, which is put together by Peter Davison, uh, who's of a British university. I can't remember what university he worked for, actually. But Peter Davison put together his collected works across 20 volumes. And so if you wanted a print copy of everything George Orwell wrote, and if you had you know, $3,000 to spend on these out-of-print books, you could easily have them. And then you would have a listing of them. The other thing you can do is you can kind of scour the internet and you can find little bits and pieces in different places. You know, For instance, his work is in the public domain in Canada. It's not in the United States, which is really unfortunate. But there are places, and there are other places that don't care about copyright. So you can find some great websites like Orwell.ru that hosts some of his writings, but not all of them. And you can find some lists, some places that are more or less complete. But like with anything, you know, if you imagine any kind of collection. If you're collecting baseball cards or if you're collecting facts about World War II, you know, there's always a surface level. And then there's more and then there's more and you go deeper. And it's like, well, there's this article that he may have written under the pseudonym John Freeman. And, we, you know, there's a controversy about whether or not he really wrote this one article. Um, and then there are these letters that he wrote. Well, can you include these letters? And then there's miscellany from his juvenile period, like a play he wrote when he was 12 or 18 or something. You know, these poems that he wrote for his high school newspaper. So you can go down the rabbit hole trying to compile these and list them and then say, well, where was it reproduced? It was reproduced in the complete Orwell. That's true. I mean, everything he wrote was. But then it was also reproduced in this book and in that book. And there are variations in this text and that text, you know. So you can get a pretty easy surface level view anywhere and I wanted to provide something more than that and then there's secondary sources you know there there are other bibliographies and other biographies and critical editions and stuff so you know it kind of never ends um, even though it seems like it's a it's a pretty it's 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 a closed canon of literature right he's a dead man he's not writing anything else right, he stopped right. writing you know in 1950 so but there's more to write about it. So, or take another example, you know, Abraham Lincoln. Well, there's, a, there's an article on Abraham Lincoln in English on Wikipedia. And man's been dead for a long time, but it's still being refined and changed and fixed and things are being added to it. And there's new scholarship. So the edges of it kind of change. The, the whole body of it won't change. If you look at it now and you look at it again in 15 years, it'll probably be 75% the same. 
but there'll still be 25% that'll be different. Things will have changed. It's not because Abraham Lincoln changed. It's because what we know about him or think about him has or that sort of thing. Right, right. right. How much of your work, uh, how many of these 1.8 million edits are edits where you're touching up something that already exists and how many are like, oh, there's no bibliography for George Orwell. I'll get that started now. Right, right. Well, many of them are exactly what you'd imagine. You know, it's not 1.8 million original articles that I wrote, which are themselves several pages long. That would be impossible. You know, it's a life's work and then some. There are plenty of times where a really common edit that I make is taking typographic fixes like hyphens and where hyphens are inserted in places where an N dash or an M dash should be. I'll put those in. Which oh, is extremely man. narrow. That's the sort of th- yeah, exactly. So that's the sort of thing that's so arcane or so trivial. You're replacing dashes with like the fancy double dash that is supposed to be used. There. Right, exactly. That's a for instance of the sort of thing I've done before. Now that's not all I do, but exactly. When you look at 1.8 million, you see a lot of you know fixing these dashes, and with, they have these tools that can make it a little bit easier. These semi-automated scripts and tools and stuff. So it's not me even. I mean, I still have to do it manually, but without getting too deep into the guts of it, you know, there are these tools that help me do little tiny fixes over and over again. And everyone can have them, too. I'm not the only one who has them. But I'm, the, I'm just one of the few who actually takes the time to do it. So there are plenty, that's why I said before, there are plenty of edits I made that were very small, and they're mostly for me. They're cosmetic, or they're mostly for me, and they're, they're essentially rearranging and remixing existing content. That happens a lot, to be sure. And then there are some where I, a new album's released. Like, the Eels put out a new album uh, two days ago, the band, the indie rock band from California. So, you know, they put out a new album, and as soon as I heard about it, I thought, well, I'm going to write the article on it. And so I've been looking up reviews of the album since it's come out. I've been adding to it on a semi-daily basis. I know there's more I could do. I, you know, on Metacritic, I think they had, like, 12 reviews of the album, and I've only written about four or five of them for the Wikipedia article, so I know that I could kind of go back and mine that for some content. I don't have any sales figures on it yet. Maybe they haven't been published yet, but Billboard will put out their their listings, and then there will be other charts across the world that will list it and stuff. You know, So there's going to be more to do, but that's an example of when, when Eels are releasing a new album, especially if I'm the first person to get to it, if I'm the first person who kind of puts a stamp on it, then I'll be pretty aggressive about writing and improving and editing on a new article. But usually a new article is, is for me, a new event. So if there's a new thing, I'll write about it. I don't necessarily go back and write about things that, that could be written about but just haven't been yet. Um, but I do sometimes. You know, There are times when I go back on stuff that is just a gap in the knowledge. It's not, it's not something that never occurred. It's something that can occur, should occur, would have occurred, and no, no one's written it yet. Well, how do you actually find areas of Wikipedia that need updating? Because to me, and I'm on Wikipedia a lot, let me tell you, I'm on Wikipedia a lot, and it feels so complete, and it has felt so complete for like a decade now at least. So how do you find the areas that do need work, that do need updating? Because to me, like, um, again, I'm on Wikipedia a lot, and I, I don't feel like I see them very often. Sure. Well, the first thing is I'll read about something because I'm interested in it. You know, I I was reading about Bobby Fischer the other day, and the Bobby Fischer article in English is very fine. There's not a lot for me to add to it, and I'm not an expert on the topic, so I don't have a lot of keen insight into it. But there were some small typographical fixes, so as I was reading it, I proofread it. 
you know. And again, what what everyone else, my coworkers there, have done is very fine. So I didn't have a lot to add to it anyway. And I even added some stuff, and someone else removed it. And I thought, well, that's actually a good point, or that was that's a superior way of doing it anyway. So I thought, all right, well, I guess good point. I'm glad the I'm glad someone else reviewed my edits and undid some of the edits I did because it made it a stronger article. So that's the first step. Is I am reading it anyway because I'm a reader of encyclopedia, and I come across something that I don't like or don't understand, or something that was format, uh, formatted poorly. Excuse me, I poorly formatted my words. <laughs> you know, and I, I say, I can fix this, or I can improve this, or there will be news, you know, again, to take an example of something that's already kind of a closed issue or something, I mean, there there's a never-ending stream of uh, articles and books and films about World War II, and there's always some new perspective on it, or some new thing that's found, or, you know, there's always something new about World War II, and there are a lot of articles on Wikipedia about World War II, so if you can drill down to the exact article where this new piece of information fits, then you can plop that in, too. You know, the, one of the most recent edits I made just now was to the article on Titanic, the 1997 James Cameron film. And the news about Titanic is that the domestic... Uh, let's see if I get this right. The domestic take of the box office in the United States for Titanic was overtaken by Black Panther. So that film has grossed more money in America, even adjusted for inflation or some such. I don't know the exact formulation. But, you know, Titanic happened a long time ago. That film is decades old. So there's nothing new about the film as such, but there's new news about the record that it set a long time ago. You know what I mean? Right, right. So if I come across a new fact somewhere and I think that's interesting, then I'm liable to add it to the encyclopedia. Do you have a specialty like an area where most of your edits are because so far you've talked about politics you've talked about pop culture it seems like you've got um a pretty wide spread but is there an area you find that you're usually returning to those are a couple where i go back to again and again and there are occasions where i'll just kind of stretch myself and make myself write about something where i don't really know that much like something about geology or you know turtles or something, something I don't really know a lot about, but I find out a new thing. I wrote an article, it's not very good, and it's not very big, but about a certain type of donkey in Cyprus, because I read an article about it. And the the article itself even had a political slant. The problem was, in Cyprus, that island has been partially occupied by Turkish forces, and they kind of set up their, their own little puppet government, uh, the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus. And so I was interested in it because I'm interested in politics and kind of international, international conflict and frozen conflicts and that sort of thing. But the, the article that I read was about how this Cyprus donkey is like crossing over the border. And so there's no one really to patrol it because technically the border's not supposed to exist. And so they were discussing it through this political dimension, but it's a land race of an actual species of donkey. So I kind of wrote about that a little bit. Again, not too great, but... It doesn't have to be great. You know, someone else who knows about donkeys can come along and fix it, too. I wrote what I could about donkeys. I don't know a lot about donkeys. So there are times when I make it a point to try to stretch myself or I try to make it a point to write a really good article or an extensive article. And there are other times where I think, well, what I want to do right now is I just want to read it for enjoyment and I want to do a little light copy editing or proofreading. Or I'll notice a persistent problem over and over again. And so I'll fix that problem across across a kind of suite of articles or a topic. 
And it's just fixing that little thing. There are times I don't even read the article I'm fixing because it's just the little tiny thing I'm fixing. And I just know that thing's wrong. It doesn't matter what everything else is in the article. You know, again, to give another for instance, one thing I almost always look at is I look at the references on pages. And if the reference on a page is just a URI, it's just, you know, a website's address and nothing else, then that's insufficient because websites, unfortunately, can change. They're not static. I mean, it's one of the nice things about them, but it's one of the bad things about them. So that's not a very good citation if you just give a web address and nothing else. So anytime I see those, I try to mark it or tag it as saying, someone needs to fix this. Sometimes I fix it. Usually I don't. Usually it depends on whether or not I am interested in the topic. But at the very least, every claim on Wikipedia should be sourced and all the sources should be good. So I don't have to know anything about turtles. But I do know that if someone's citing a source about a turtle and the only thing he cites is just a web address, that's not correct. That's not final or, or fit. All right. So now you edited Wikipedia once. You got hooked. You're, you're editing Wikipedia every day. At what point um, did you look at the list of the people with the most edits and say, oh, I, I, I could be on this list? Well, I remember there was a time, even around 2000 and. I'm going to say around 2007 or something, and pretty early on from when I was editing. And at the time, there were more, um, I don't know how you put it, more of the kind of social features of the website. Like, you could make, there are lists of, like, Wikipedians by birthday. Now, it's not part of the proper encyclopedia. You know, there are kind of some pages that are encyclopedia, and there's some pages which are kind of social or for coordination. And I remember posting, oh, this is when my birthday is. And there are other pages about, like, Wikipedians by interest. And the idea is you can kind of meet other Wikipedians who are interested in the same thing. You know, meet them digitally, not necessarily in person. Uh, although, maybe in person. And at the time, there was stuff like that. You know, just kind of for fun stuff. There's still some of that now, but the site's kind of too big. It's kind of grown beyond that. And it just doesn't serve that function as much anymore. But there have always been some list of, like, Wikipedians that have the most edits. And I can remember... A long time ago, there was a guy named, I think Simon P. was the guy who was probably the one with the most edits then, and he had like 75,000. I thought, wow, this guy's crazy. This guy's edited this thing 75,000 times. It's a ton. And then there was another guy who joined. He actually joined because he was a troll, and he was part of like a trolling brigade called the GNAA. And they would come in, and they would just ruin articles and screw stuff up, you know. And he just ended up staying and he had this really particular interest in highways. I think American highways. I think even especially like highways that went through Ohio, maybe. So this guy, he, he chose the username SPUI. He just wrote tons of articles about highways. And so the guy edited a lot on Wikipedia. And, and that list existed for a long time. So I came across that just as part of the social feature of it. And then at some point, I was on it. And then at some point, I kept on, you know, kind of bubbling up and getting higher and higher. But... You know, the, the point, the goal, the strategy was never to have any particular number of edits or be in a particular place on the list. You know, if it were, then I wouldn't be number two now. I used to be number one. I'm number two now because there's someone else who's just edited more than I have, and that's fine because he, what he does is generally good for the encyclopedia. You know, so the goal is not to get, it's not a contest, there aren't points, but the goal was for me to do as much as I could, you know. So for me doing as much as I could, then at some point I had, ended up getting over a million and for a while, I was the person that had the most. Now I'm not anymore, and that's also fine. And I've also moved on to some of the other sister sites that Wikipedia has. Wikipedia is an encyclopedia, but they also have similar sites that are, for instance, a dictionary. There's Wiktionary. It's run by the same nonprofit, and that's actually a pretty extensive dictionary. It's pretty big, 
but just like Wikipedia, even though it has a lot of content, there's still gaps. And, you know, so I've kind of tried to stretch myself that way, too. I've tried to stretch myself by writing news stories for Wikinews, and I've tried to, you know, do other stuff kind of related to Wikipedia on their sister sites, in part because I, I'm just interested and there's more things that interest me, and in part because, um, you know, there's kind of new challenges and new things I want to learn. Aside from weirdos like me reaching out, wanting to interview you about Wikipedia, has there been any, like, fringe benefits of being one of the top Wikipedia editors? Has it opened up any opportunities for you? A couple, actually. I've been invited to a couple of conferences, and I had an academic publication from Springer. Uh, They're an academic publisher. They're not a university press, but they're an academic publisher. So I was published with some academics. I was invited to this conference in 2014, which was an academic conference, and it was funded by the um, NSF. It was an NSF-funded conference in Washington, D.C., so that was cool. It was a great experience. I still talk to one of the women I met there every now and again today, and I've even been invited to a statistical conference in Vancouver. Uh, so I, one of my items today is I'm supposed to coordinate with somebody I know who works in statistics and or works with data at least, and see if she and I can collaborate together on this this um, presentation at this statistical conference in Vancouver. So you know, I've gotten roped into that, which is cool, which is great. Actually, it's a cool opportunity. It's it's a neat thing to put on a resume. It was. It's fun to be able to kind of express myself, you know, uh, and be published. It's neat. Um, I'm not sure necessarily how helpful it is or how much I really contributed to the literature, but I hope I did. Um, and, you know, when it comes to fringe benefits, you know, I was on the cover of the newspaper and that made my mom happy. So she liked that. And then I, I did have somebody recognize me the next day. I was on the cover of the Indie Star. And then the next day I went to a labor rally and some, some old guy said, Hey, you're that guy who was on the newspaper yesterday. Yep, yep, that's me. Um, I went into Marsh, which is a local uh, local grocer that actually just closed down pretty recently. But I went to Marsh, and um, the guys who rang me up every every morning when I would go get tomatoes at 2 in the morning, they said, hey, you're that guy that's on the newspaper. You're that guy that never wants his receipt. I was like, yep, that's me. That's that guy. So those are pretty much all the benefits. It's the mildest amount of fame possible. It's the mildest amount of notoriety that anyone could ever have so which is fun it's cool i like talking and i like meeting new new folks so that is the fringe benefit the fringe benefit is meeting strangers and talking about stuff that interests me and exchanging ideas here's what i will say about your work even though you are um perhaps not the most famous celebrity in america uh I think your work very likely to still be around in like a century, in two centuries. Like I don't think Wikipedia is going anywhere. And you're right, like it will continue to evolve. And I don't know which of your 1.8 million edits is still going to be here. But like um, they're not going anywhere. Like Wikipedia, I don't think is going anywhere. Um, and I think what you do um, is going to last a long time. Do you ever think about that? Absolutely, yeah. I think it's one of the great things about it is it's a cultural resource and repository that I can add to that I feel will be around for a long time and will help uh, to educate millions of other persons I'll never meet. And I think it's really cool. I think it's also really cool that even if some of it's pretty tiny, um, let's forget about the dashes and the hyphens and stuff, but even the actual text that I've written, you know, I've written something that someone has, has read more than most persons who write anything. You know, Absolutely, if you imagine yeah. every person who's ever written, yeah, imagine every person who's ever written a romance novel or, you know, a family genealogy or something, and it put forth a lot of effort. I mean, it's not to say that what I've read, what I've written is any better than anyone else's, but it's just a pretty cool opportunity that I can write something and I have a way of publishing it 
that a bunch of strangers will see. And so I've had hundreds of thousands or millions of eyes on things I've written and will continue to for quite a while. Yeah, it's, it is. It's really cool. It's, it's, it's fun, it's neat, and it's also kind of responsibility because I feel like I'd like to do right by the fact that a bunch of strangers are going to see stuff I've written. Why do you think uh, Wikipedia actually works? Why is it so good? Because if you describe the way it works, anyone can just change and edit anything. Anyone on the internet can just swing by and change it to whatever they want. doesn't sound like it should work. It sounds like chaos. And yet, it's this great resource. It doesn't seem like it should work. So why does it? Sure. Well, that's true of any common thing. If you imagine the library or democracy or a park or anything where kind of a large pool of more or less disinterested individuals are allowed to do something, then it can turn to garbage really fast. And what it requires is some measure of vigilance. Now, again, say taking a democracy, presumably every citizen and even residents who aren't citizens should be invested in it, you know? So if you imagine elections, that's, a, that's not the only thing that's a democracy, but you imagine an election, well, every person, even if they don't vote, still has a kind of stake in who wins an election because that person is influenced and, uh, well, that person's life is impacted by decisions of persons who have power. Or if you imagine a library, again, even if you don't use the library or, say, public schools, let's say you send your kid to private schools or you homeschool your kid. Those are perfectly legitimate options. But you're impacted by public schools because if public schools are bad and there's a whole generation of illiterates, that's going to affect you, right? So any common resource that exists requires uh, some ma uh, some manner of investment and vigilance by specialists, by laypersons, by volunteers, by you know by persons across segments of humanity. Um, and Wikipedia has maybe failed at some of those. For instance, you know, women is a pretty big oversight. Not a lot of women contribute, and it's probably because there's something about the culture of it that that keeps women from feeling welcome. And I know that. The Wikimedia Foundation and individual Wikipedians really take that seriously and have tried really hard to make it a welcoming place for women. But it's hard to be a woman on the internet in general. You know? It's hard to be a woman in general. So the way it works is because there are a handful of power users and a handful of you know true believers who work really hard and put forth a lot of expertise to try to make it work and make it function. Can I quickly then ask, I, I don't mean to interrupt you, but would you consider mm -hmm. yourself one of those true believers and one of those power users? You would be, right? Well, not really, actually. How could you not be a power user? You're number two on the site. Well, well because, because think about it. You know, again, some of, the, some of the edits I make aren't necessarily that big a deal. But the person who like made a filter that makes it impossible for the article in Vietnam to be replaced with racial right. slurs like it was 13 years ago, that's a really big change. So he doesn't necessarily do stuff on a day-to-day -day basis, you know, but that's, a really, that's really valuable. If you have just an open repository on the internet uh, that's just a free speech Wild West, I think we've all learned that that goes really bad really fast uh, for a variety of reasons. So... You know, some platforms on the internet are kind of still struggling to understand that, or they haven't really been very aggressive about shutting that down. And so, I, and I think Wikipedia has. So it's really hard to find that balance. And I think Wikipedia got kind of lucky. And I think that we still kind of go back and forth on exactly what constitutes, you know, free knowledge and what constitutes sharing of information and what constitutes censorship and that sort of thing. But I think we just erred on on the right side for the most part. Um. <clears throat> But yeah, that's that's a great change. That's a really important change. It's not something I did. I had nothing to do with that. But I, in you know, I totally support it. I don't want 
uh, I don't want racial slurs all over the place. I don't want racism to be promoted. And I don't, I certainly don't want educational resources to be replaced with just, you know, racist jokes. That's not, that's not funny and that's not helpful, (laughs) but I didn't, I didn't do anything about it. So on the one hand, there's, there's that tier of person. So yeah, maybe, maybe I am um, a power user in that sense, just because I use it all the time. Um, but there are others who have really contributed to the fundamental mechanics of right, how it operates, right. and they affect every edit. And then there's a there's a tier of just ca- kind of casual users, and those are really important. And then there's a tier of readers that that reader tier has a real investment, and it would be a real waste of everyone's time if no one read it. You know, if we put forth all this effort to grab this great encyclopedia and it had all these cool technical features, and no one used it, then that would be really uh, a waste of time. So you know, they're very important to it functioning properly. Um, and as long as there's enough of those, as long as there's kind of a critical mass of enough of those in the right proportions, and they can kind of drown out all the other guys who try to ruin it and piss all over for everybody else, then it works. Again, just like the library. You know, every now and again, somebody's going to steal stuff from the library. Or, you know, someone's going to be homeless, and that's just his way of getting out of the rain. You know, which is good for him. You know, I'm glad someone can get out of the rain. But that's not really the intended purpose of the library. But as long as enough persons bring back their books, and as long as it isn't flooded entirely by, you know, transients, then the library works. And the same thing's true of Wikipedia or any commons. As long as there are enough of us who really care about it and really put forth our skills and talents and our interests, or at least have eyes on it. You know, that's also a big part of, for instance, politics and democracy is just having a set of eyes on things and being attentive. You know, being knowledgeable. That's a pretty good start. It doesn't fix stuff, but it gets a pretty far way to being able to fix stuff at the very least. Are you totally satisfied with how Wikipedia works today? And if I made you CEO of Wikimedia, Wikimedia, I don't even know if the CEO has this power, but is there are there any policies on Wikipedia that you would change if you could? One that immediately comes to mind that I think was a misstep, I said that I think we've been lucky in some respects as a community, and I think that we've also managed to choose the right choice a lot of times, but the only really big misstep that I can think of is that Wikipedia, well, it's kind of arcane, so there there are believers in net neutrality. There's some of us who believe that as long as, with, with like the barest possible exceptions of certain types of content... Basically, if you try to access a website, no matter what it is, you shouldn't be given any preferential treatment or given like a fast track to a certain website, or you shouldn't be on a plan where you buy from your ISP. Well, you can have unlimited views on YouTube, but you can only go to Daily Motion or Vimeo seven times a day or something. You know, some of us believe that the internet should be, it should inherently be, especially the web, should inherently be just kind of an open marketplace of ideas. There shouldn't be like institutional preferences given to one actor or another actor, right? And I would hope that the Wikipedia community and the Wikimedia movement would believe in that too, and I think a lot of us do, but there was a program where Facebook, Facebook has this a lot of places, it's pretty pernicious, pretty awful, Facebook and Wikipedia joined up where if you were in certain parts of the world, you know, what we might call the third world or global south, and you had a cellular mobile provider that gave you a, a smartphone and gave you access to the internet, you could have a data plan that wouldn't charge you for using Facebook or using Wikipedia. And so if you used other websites, you would get charged for the data, but not those two. Um, and I don't believe in that. I don't believe that Facebook should give you prefer- preferential treatment. If anything, quite the opposite. But they shouldn't be given preferential treatment for the internet. Wikipedia shouldn't be given preferential treatment for the internet. If some Angolan wants to use a smartphone and he wants to go on, you know, 
whatever website he wants to, then he he should be he shouldn't be charged more for certain websites or less for other websites. It's, it's crazy, you know. The data is the data are the data. He should be able to view whatever he wants to view, and there shouldn't be institutional barriers blocking him from certain things or disincentivizing him from one website to another. Anyway, that program wound down actually just as a matter of weeks ago. I think in part because it was not successful or it was abused. What ended up happening was. Uh, this happened a lot in Bangladesh and Angola, I think. I'm not really sure why. But a lot of users were using Wikipedia and Facebook uh, for pirating. And essentially, they were using it as a way of kind of uploading media with, like, fake names and then going to a Facebook group and posting. You know, I, it says it's this, but it's really that. So hurry up and download it really fast. And so there were just these these crazy problems. But on the other hand, I don't blame them. I mean, if, if you're given some weird fast track to the Internet that's only two websites... I don't blame you for abusing it. You know that's totally legitimate because you were given these two weird options where these are the only two websites you're allowed to use. So you use them however you can use them. Good for you. I'm not blaming the Angolans and Bangladeshis and everybody else who abuse that system. The system itself is abuse. They were being abused by having that system. So anyway, there are these there are these problems logistically with it. There are problems. Um, I think morally with it, and that's why it should have been shut down. It should never been in the first place. And there were users of the website who also thought that way too. So that's an example of one that I felt was a real misstep, a serious misstep, and that's the only one that immediately comes to mind that was a really serious problem. Otherwise, there are, there is an institutional structure of the Wikimedia Foundation, and there is a CEO. But the sort of person who does that doesn't really get involved in the day-to-day grind of what rules there are. Not because it's a woman, actually, she couldn't. But someone could, but they just trust the community will essentially police itself. And once you reach a certain level of users, and if there's enough kind of growth, and if persons are kind of coming and going at, at the right rates, then essentially it will all kind of balance out. It'll work together. You know, if it ossifies and if it becomes too small, or if you know, if there are these institutional features where certain users are given too many privileges or whatever, then it becomes a real problem, and you need to step in. But for the most part, it's a self-policing community, so I wouldn't want to any more than I'd want to tell you how to live your life. You know, if someone made me king of the world or something, then I wouldn't want to do it. Not because it's 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 too much responsibility, although it is, but it's just not my place. I wouldn't want to rule your life, and I wouldn't want to dictate how Wikipedia runs. I would just want to stick to the principles I believe in and the values I believe in, and that's the only time I can really think of where the Wikimedia Foundation kind of undermine their own essential principles. You know, right, right, right. Is there? Can you give me a sense of how? On a controversial Wiki, Wikipedia page, you mentioned gun control. I don't not particular. I'm not especially familiar with the gun control page, but you can imagine it's a controversial one where some people wanted to say one thing, some people wanted to include other stats or whatever it is. How does that come? How does that all get resolved? Like uh, gun control or abortion, like these unsolvable issues in this country where there's always people who disagree. How how do we come to a consensus for what I see when I open up the Wikipedia page for those topics? Well, really, your question kind of contradicts itself, because on the one hand, you're asking how it gets resolved, but on the other hand, you're asking for a consensus, and consensus is something that changes, right? So consensus, by its definition, it isn't something where you come down on the final definitive answer, you know? Sometimes sometimes that's what happens in certain systems, is you say, look, we're not going to talk about it forever, we're going to make a decision, and this is the plan of action, you know, or this is the plan, this is the five-year plan, and we'll talk about it again in five more years. But for five years, this is what, this is where the economy goes, or what the party says is going to dictate, or something, you know. And and those are final answers. And so, if you're working at a company and you've got a CEO, then you know maybe that person can say, well, this is what the the policy is, and until I'm voted out, this is what the policy is going to be, you know. And there's not really a feature like that at Wikipedia. 
But consensus also isn't like an endless process where there's never a decision made. So it's kind of a mix of both of those. You know, consensus changes over time, but it also doesn't change from moment to moment. Just like how, you know, your, your beliefs or your perspectives change over time, but it's not like everything's up for question constantly, you know. And then there are also some principles, again, kind of on a level of principles rather than really rules. Um, there are principles that are pretty bedrock and essentially will never change. So, you know, Wikipedia is a free encyclopedia. That means it's free both in terms you don't have to pay money, but it's also free in terms of free culture and spreading free knowledge, you know. That, that really can't change. Inherently, that's just kind of what the encyclopedia is. So it doesn't really matter how many users feel differently. You know, that there's really no method of Wikipedia becoming a not-free encyclopedia. So some bedrock things essentially won't change. Then there are some other things which will change maybe on the fringes and the margins a little bit, but their core of them will stay the same. And then there are other things which will kind of change and kind of sway over time. And then there are other things that are more volatile. But your question is a good one. It's, you know, when you have a controversial issue, what happens? You know, sometimes there are votes. And usually the way the votes get tallied is not in a consensus decision-making scheme is not just a straight up and down vote. You don't just take, well, there are 150 votes that say this, and there are 151 that say that, so we're going to choose that. You know, you also have to weigh the arguments of who's making the votes, and you have to have a little bit of decision making and some discrimination and say, well, look, these 151 guys, 100 of them just appeared yesterday. And the other 150 who chose the first option, well, they've been here for a while and they made reasoned arguments and stuff. So it's, it's obvious who wins, you know. Um, but but the purpose of it is that there will never be a time when everything's decided and finalized. It's always a work in progress. Just like how that's how knowledge is. You know, knowledge in real life is also always provisional and partial, and it's from a certain perspective. But it hopefully gets more complete and more more true as time goes on. So that's a good example. There there are times when the community, I think, has chosen poorly. I think there have been times where we've... I've been on the losing end of an argument, and I still think my position's right, and if the time is ripe, and if uh, the community feels that way, then maybe they'll agree with me. Or maybe I'll just be wrong, or maybe I'll just be frustrated. That That's something that's going to happen. I can't control you know, 5.8 million articles in English, and I wouldn't if I could, like I just said. So, you know, on, on the topic like, uh, say for instance, the pro-life movement. If you look up the pro-life movement on Wikipedia... Uh, what you'll find is that that movement is not called, the article for that movement is not called the pro-life movement. Um, instead, the, the pro-life wing of that discussion is called the anti-abortion movement. And that's not generally what that wing calls itself. So usually articles are titled what a people or a group or an organization calls itself. You know, that's, that's a pretty standard way of referring to someone is, well, this people group, for instance, you know, we don't call... Inuits Eskimos because they find it offensive. It doesn't matter if we think that's a uh, more common name or if it's been common in the past. It's just an offensive term. So we wouldn't call the Rama, we wouldn't call them gypsies, you know, so on and so forth. Now, those are ethnic groups, uh, so it's a little bit different. But that, still, that's what we generally call those groups, is we call them what they want to call themselves. And the other side of that group is, is titled pro-choice, and that's the title of the article. So there was a discussion several years ago about whether or not the pro-life movement should be called pro-life, or if it should be called, um, you know, if it should be called uh, um, anti-abortion. And then they end up coming down on the anti-abortion side. So in other words, they end up choosing to not call them by what they call themselves. And for a while, the other group was called pro-choice, but then eventually that pro-choice side was, was renamed abortion rights movement. So now there is kind of a parody to it. 
right? So that's an example where the consensus changed and now I feel better about the consensus. Not necessarily what I would choose. I still think they should be called whatever they want to call themselves. I think it's a pretty good rubric or pretty good uh, rule of thumb. But the consensus can end up swaying to a way that I feel is more, um, more neutral ultimately. You know, another example that immediately comes to mind is that there's an article on Muhammad, of course. You know, it's, he's a pretty important figure in human history, and there is a controversy amongst Muslims about whether or not Muhammad should ever be depicted in like a graphic form. You know, there are some Muslims who are very serious about not showing depictions of any humans, and especially of Muhammad. And then there are others. There's a long history of Islamic art that portrays Muhammad. Right? Especially in certain regions of the world and certain times and stuff. So there was a discussion about, well, should we include any image of Muhammad? What should it be? So on and so forth. You know, I thought that we should. I think that's standard. Most, bibli- or most bibliographical articles, biographical articles, excuse me, most biographical articles have a picture of the person. Even if it's not a photograph, you know, there's a standard way of kind of viewing that person. And what the consensus ended up being was that the most common way of representing Muhammad is through Arabic calligraphy. Which is beautiful and is, is very common. So for Muslims who don't make a, a depiction of his face, then that is the common way of having this really beautiful and ornate method of kind of recognizing Muhammad, right? So that argument, I mean, it's not baseless, and I don't think it was pandering to Muslims as such. You know, So I'm not saying, I'm not calling bad faith on it. It's just not what I would have chosen. Um, so it ended up being a little bit different than what I would have done. Um, I don't necessarily think it's the wrong decision. It's just not a decision I would have chosen. So consensus changes. That the the long the long answer was that, and the short answer is consensus changes. Sometimes it changes the way I want. Sometimes it changes the way I don't want. And then sometimes over time it kind of ends up with a parity. And sometimes it ends up in being kind of written by committee where kind of no one's happy, you know. And then eventually maybe that'll change too, you know. Sometimes uh, an issue changes, and so. You know, women voting used to be this really controversial issue, and there were kind of two sides of the argument, and, you know, there's kind of a balance between them, you know, and today that's a crazy thing to say. It's, uh, it, there's no one would give you the time of day if you said that women shouldn't have the vote. That's just a ridiculous thing to say. Or, you know, there were, if you even think of the United States, there were lynchings in the United States, and there's a terrible thing. And the persons who took all those photos of lynchings, they were usually guys who participated in the lynching. They were so in favor of it, they documented it. You know, and they wanted to be in the newspaper because they're terrorists. <laughs> but it's not like there's a false balance where it's like, well, where should we come down on lynching? Do we have to come down somewhere in the middle where some say it's good, some say it's bad, or something like that? I mean, that's that's not really how consensus works either. Um, so, yeah, they're controversial issues, and what's controversial today won't be controversial forever, and, you know, what where, where consensus ends up lying will also change. You know, there used to be kind of a consensus about women not going to school or voting, and... That's, and at least in America, that's not something that's really up for discussion. You mentioned earlier, and you, you probably thought I forgot about it, but you had been banned from Wikipedia at some point. Was it because you got involved in a debate on one of these controversial issues? How did that come to be? Exactly. Sure, sure. It's happened several times. Um, and it's all because of editing about Western Sahara. Um, it's just being a hothead and not being not really abiding by the rules. Um, it's my fault ultimately. Um, but yeah, I would go back and forth with editors, specifically editors from Morocco. And you know, in Morocco, it's uh, a cultural taboo to say something about the sovereignty of Western Sahara and the rights of the Sahrawi people to control their own destiny and that sort of thing. So you know, they're raised in a certain milieu where it's expected 
that that would be true, and I'm sure a lot of them really believe it too. You know, I'm not saying that they don't have agency, but that's how they really feel. So they feel a certain way, I feel a different way, and sometimes they bring things to the, to the topic that are just inappropriate. So there are sometimes they make edits which are not allowed, and then there are other times they make edits which are a little contentious, and there's sometimes they make edits which are, of course, perfectly fine and perfectly neutral. Um, so it took it's more a matter of my maturity. It's not a matter of something be wrong with Moroccans or that they can't edit articles related to Western Sahara or something. It's nothing like that. But I was just immature and fight and kind of be a hothead. And, uh, you know, rightfully so. Uh, I, would, I would be put on a restriction for a little while or told to cool my jets for a couple days or something like that. And so, you know, I've there, there are two kind of dimensions to this. One is I think I've just matured as a person. And on the other hand, um, you know, I've stuck around while others have come and gone. And so others just kind of get exhausted or they have other things to do with their lives. And I keep on editing the encyclopedia. So you can either win by obeying the rules or you can win just due to attrition. And I hope I don't win because of that. But, um, yeah, I, I haven't really had that be an issue um, in the past. I think a lot of people think editing Wikipedia is this thing for PhDs and computer hackers and don't actually realize how easy it is, how anyone can do it. Um, like, what would you say to someone who is, it's in the back of their head, oh, I see a typo on Wikipedia, maybe I should edit it, or maybe there's um, something I noticed it was missing. How, how would you recommend someone get started uh, editing Wikipedia? That's a good question, and unfortunately, my my answer is a little bit tempered by the fact that Wikipedia is a little bit unwelcoming in two respects. One is some of the users are not necessarily that friendly. And unfortunately, that's just a reality. I, don't, I wish that weren't true, and I know that others make it a point to be extremely welcoming. And Wikipedia also welcomes persons, or it, it, there are contributors from different cultural backgrounds, or who have different um, you know, preferences and personalities. And it's just hard to accommodate absolutely everyone. So even if everyone can edit it, and I, that's true, and everyone has something to add. I genuinely believe that. I genuinely think everyone has something to add in Encyclopedia. Um, you know, there are going to be personality clashes, or someone's just going to be turned off by someone being a jerk, or something like that, and unfortunately, there's no way for me to patrol all that, and I, I wish that other users would come to it, and they would just know that because it's a big commons, there's just sometimes going to be someone who's going to clash with you. And again, I used the example of women earlier. Um, I'll use it again. You know, this is a big problem on Wikipedia's part and the community's part by not being as welcoming to women. And in part, that's I don't think it's a problem of the community. I think it, the community is just replicating a lot of biases against women that already exist. So I don't think there's anything particular new at Wikipedia. I think a woman on the internet is already accustomed to you know, being excluded or harassed or something. And the type of exclusion or harassment she'll experience at Wikipedia is probably a lot better than at most websites. So I, at the very least, I've got that going for it. You know, harassment is just outright not allowed, but exclusion or kind of being locked out might happen, and that's really unfortunate. So that's the one thing. On the one hand, one thing that might seem unwelcoming is some of the other users, and that's really unfortunate, and <clears throat> I don't necessarily know what the solution is to that. But knowing about it ahead of time is helpful, at least. You know, just understand, some of these users don't have as good of English as you. Some of them come from different cultures as you. Some of them might be on the autism spectrum, and the way that they relate to another person is not necessarily the way you're accustomed to relating to someone, right? So just knowing that going in, I think, is helpful. Another one is that Wikipedia is not quite as user-friendly as a site like 
Oh, like social media sites, right? There are a lot of social media sites that make it extremely seamless and really easy to contribute. And that's what they want. They want you to just contribute constantly. So again, to use the example of Facebook, Facebook wants you to be on Facebook constantly. They don't matter what you're they don't care what you're doing. You know, you can be liking things or sharing things or uploading photos or commenting, but their whole goal is for you to be on Facebook as long as possible doing absolutely everything on Facebook. That's not the goal of Wikipedia. The goal of Wikipedia isn't, for, isn't just to capture your clicks and your attention as much as possible because it's not monetized. They don't monetize the data. So the, there's no incentive for you to be on there just, you know, screwing around back and forth with your friends like there is on Facebook. On Facebook, they want you to be there doing trivial stuff constantly. But that's not there's not really an incentive for that on Wikipedia monetarily or due to its mission. So what they want is they want you to be contributing to the encyclopedia. And there's a social dimension again, but that's not necessarily as big a, a part of it. So if you're coming into it, it's not necessarily as fun in some respects, uh, but it's also not as trivial. And I, that, for me, is a lot more interesting. Plus, I have read before, and I think this is a really interesting perspective, I've read that <clears throat> Wikipedia is a little bit overwhelming to look at, or it's not quite as flashy or as fun to look at as some other pretty big websites. But in a way, that's actually a good thing, because if you have just a very small barrier to entry then everyone who's going to participate really wants to be there. You know, if you make it super easy to contribute, extremely easy to contribute, then you'll probably end up with a lot of really low-effort garbage. And that's just, again, reality. That's true of anything. If every person in the world wrote a pop song, there would be a billions of bad pop songs, and then there'd be a few that are pretty good, and there'd be a, a very small amount that are excellent. That's just how that's how everything is. If, if there's no barrier to entry at all, then you'll end up with a lot of dross. But on the other hand, you don't want to make it very unfriendly. You want it, I think that it should be that if someone wants to contribute and genuinely cares and is willing to put forth a mild amount of effort, that person can and should contribute. So that's the goal, I think. The goal is to make it so that someone has to care just a little bit and put forth just a little bit of effort uh, to do something meaningful on the site. If you want to do stuff that's just really tiny and small, you can do that right now. Anyone can do that right now. You know, it's very rare that something's locked down and you can't edit it. It's very rare that um, a certain IP address is blocked. And even then, you can usually ask for it to be unblocked for you. You know, there are very, very small barriers to entry. Uh, But if someone wanted to participate, what I would say is you can spend a lot of time reading documentation, and that's fine. And you can spend a lot of time orienting yourself to rules, and that's also fine. There's value in that. I would suggest trying to reach out to other users who who are offering themselves to guide you. I don't necessarily know what the best venue is. Like, there's a there's a, a portion of the site called the Tea House, which is made for really informal question and answer. It's a place that's really supposed to be very gentle for new readers, and most of the persons who respond to questions are longtime users that are that are I in my experience have always been very considerate and kind. I think that's a good place to get started and say, well, how does this work? What's this about? What I would really orient myself to, or what I'd recommend, is that you orient yourself not to the rules and not necessarily to the technical stuff, although, again, they're important, but to the values and ask yourself, why are you doing this, and what do you think you have to offer, and do you really believe in this? And if you have the same set of values, then I think that's really important. If you really believe in free culture, if you believe in community, if you believe in uh, you know openness, uh, if you believe in those things, and if you believe that everyone has something to offer, then... You know, that's a really good part. That's 70% of the way right there. Uh, and then, you know, if someone really wanted to contribute, what I would recommend is I'd recommend that person uh, do exactly what I do. Start reading it, 
just enjoy it, learn from it, and then where you see some gap, then you fill it in and you fix it. And the the one piece of like practical advice I would give when it comes to like the rules and comes to technical stuff is that you should really cite sources. I've noticed that users who drop off or who get frustrated or who are just over it are users who say, "Well, I know for a fact that you know Elvis Presley was in this battle when he was in the in the army because I was there. My or my grandpa was there. He was he fought with Elvis Presley, you know, or whatever." But that's not an acceptable source. So just saying my grandpa told me something is not a source you can add to an article on Wikipedia, you know? So having a basic understanding of sources, reliable sources, how to cite them, is actually really important. And so that is one thing where I would say, if you're going to learn a rule and a technical way to do something, learn those. But if you're not even trying to add new info, if you're just trying to like make small changes in cosmetic things and stuff, or you want to dip your toes in and start talking to users, I think those are perfectly legitimate. And I, I hope more do, because we, we always need more. You believe it or not, they're, 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 you can always add something. Something that we really haven't a chance to talk about today is, what do you do when you're not editing Wikipedia? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, uh, well, when it comes to my, my personal life, um, I don't have a lot of hobbies. You know, I like reading. I sometimes write um, for my own benefit, or I'll try to put something together that I think is just fun. Um, in terms of just reading and writing, uh, I'm not necessarily, I'm not an exciting person. I'm a pretty boring person. Um, when it comes to like my social life, I just have a handful of friends, and I have really close friends, and friends I care about a lot, and I love a lot. And, um, you know, I'm also in my mid-30s. I don't necessarily need to go out and have all these crazy experiences, or make a bunch of new friends, or have a big social circle. It's nice in a way. I think it's great for those who have it. But, you know, I don't feel a strong urge to do that. Um, and when it comes to when it comes to my personal life, like I do have some goals that I want to work on, things I like to do, but they're not terribly exciting or sexy. You know, um, I enjoy learning in all kinds of dimensions. I, I wish my Spanish were better. I like to practice Spanish. Um, I would like to learn an instrument someday. You know, I've been, I played bass a little while and enjoyed it a lot. I had to get rid of it, unfortunately, but it was a really good gift. And my cousins in a band has always encouraged me to play an instrument. So that's a that's a long term goal someday I'd like to have. Um, but, you know, for me personally, I, I, I like to think that I characterize myself sometimes politically by saying that I think that I'm personally really conservative. And by that, I mean my life, my lifestyle, the things I like to do, I think are very simple. I try to keep them very simple. I try to not be entangled in a lot of extra stuff, and extraneous things. And I try to have a handful of things that I try to do really well or try to really invest myself in. And you know, socially, I like to think I'm really liberal. I hope to think I'm an accepting or open person. I like to think that I'm expansive in my mind and I'm welcoming to others. And if they have a lifestyle that's different than mine, I like to think that I can, you know, be kind or critical when it's necessary. But for me personally, I think I'm a pretty conservative, pretty simple person. And what I'm doing when I'm not editing the editing encyclopedia is probably just reading the news on the internet or maybe reading a comic book that I really like. Uh, what about professionally? What do you do? Uh, I've done a few things. I, I've I lost my job a while ago, this years ago. Uh, that was when I was editing Wikipedia, you know, sixteen hours a day. That was a time where I'd been fired from my pizza shop. I was delivering pizza, and then I got a job at a market research firm off of Craigslist, and I'd started doing some tutoring and I did some babysitting. And ever since then, I've always had multiple revenue streams. So I've never done like gig economy stuff, although it's a little bit similar. But that stuff is real ripoff. Um, and I don't, I don't begrudge any person who you know drives for a rideshare service. You know, if you're trying to make money, that you're doing what you can in a really desperate economic time, then God bless you. 
but those are just super exploitative relationships. So, in a sense, I've always had kind of gigs here and there, and uh, I'm just as much a wage slave as anybody else. And in another sense, um, you know, I've managed to avoid some of those traps at least. But whatever I'm doing at a given time, you know, I'll have a few different jobs. I was a delivery driver for several years, um, delivered for many, many restaurants, um, probably like nine different restaurants I've delivered for. And then I've always had some other kind of side gig thing or something on the on the side that's irregular to supplement my income. Tutoring I did for a long time. I just don't have any students right now. Um, or I have one really, but she doesn't pay me, so it doesn't it doesn't result in any extra money. Um, but yeah, a little this, a little that. Have you ever considered? I mean, it's so obvious you have this passion for learning and for communicating what you've learned to other people. Have you ever considered education? Sure. Yeah, I was uh, an education major when I started out of school. Um, that was the first thing that I majored in was was uh, to try to be a high school teacher. Um, but on the one hand, I don't I don't know how good of a teacher I would have been, frankly. Um, and I ended up just doing different things with my time. But on the one hand, if I have a job like delivery driving, I think it's the thing I like about it is I think I'm good at it first of all. So again, I like being good at something. And I don't really think I'm good at that many things. That's not false modesty or humility or something. I just honestly, I don't, I don't think I have that many particular skills. And I very much respect anyone who has a skill at anything. You know, again, a f- playing a fretless uh, stringed instrument, that's a real skill. Anyone who can do that, I respect. I don't know how anyone ever plays, you know, a violin or a cello. It's amazing to me. Or someone's good at calligraphy, whatever it is. I very much respect that. And I don't really feel like I have a thing I'm excellent at, but I feel like I'm pretty good at delivery driving. So on the one hand, I like it when I have a job that's pretty simple and it's something that I'm good at, or I feel like I'm good at it. And on the other hand, if I had a job that were really challenging and were really um, good work, like a teacher, I mean, that's that's excellent profession, then I might feel like that job would take a lot of my emotional and mental uh, strength. And then in my free time, I'd probably want to like tune out and not do something like this. But if I work the other way around, I feel like if I have a job where I can kind of tune out and go on autopilot, and it doesn't take a lot of my mental and emotional energy, um, then I have a lot of mental and emotional energy to put in other places, like the relationships matter in my life or editing Wikipedia, for instance. So it leaves me in my free time, I have a lot of extra reserve of strength, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, I've thought that way for several years, and maybe it's a justification for just kind of having a dead-end job, but... <clears throat> I, I kind of go back and forth on it. I mean, that's a good question. I ask myself that a lot. I was even asked by that by a friend not too long ago. I seen, I saw an old friend. She had a new bow, and I was meeting him for the first time. And he was asking, so what do you do? And I say, well, you know, that's kind of how I was viewed work, is I think of, like, work for pay is just something you need to pay the bills. And, again, I respect anybody who has honest work and whatever it is, you know, if you're a nurse or if you're a garbage man. I think those are both perfectly appropriate, you know. Sometimes you want a plumber when you're, toilet's overflowing and a heart surgeon's not very important and then sometimes you have a heart surgeon to save you from dying and a plumber's not very helpful so i totally respect anyone who has any job where they're doing good work and they're doing it well and they're doing it to feed their family but there are jobs that are great professions like nurse or teacher and those are jobs that i've wanted in the past or tried to pursue in the past and um maybe as a justification for me failing at them i just say well maybe it's better if i don't have a really great profession like that maybe i just do a simple thing well but maybe it's true. So i got to go back and forth with that myself. I think, you know, maybe it's a good thing that I don't have a really high-stress and really high-important job 
But then on the other hand, maybe it's just a way of me feeling better for myself for not having it. So I don't, I don't really know. That's a good question. It's, it's a long answer again. I have a lot of long answers to simple questions. But that makes you a great podcast guest. Yeah, this is this is probably excellent podcast material. Is it's uh, two two white guys talking about their lives for a long, long time. That's like straightforward podcast stuff. That's what yeah. this podcast is all about. Yeah, there you have it. There you have it. So maybe that's what I can do. I've always been told I had a face for podcasts. So maybe huh. that's what I should do. That's how I ended up here. Uh, I have one more question for you. I've been very excited to ask you all afternoon. What's your favorite Wikipedia page? You have like a, a Wikipedia page that to you is the most interesting, that is the most clever, that people should go check out? Uh, maybe it's a little too corny or maybe it's a little bit too silly, but it's sincerely just whatever I'm working on at the moment or what I'm looking at is really interesting. You know, there are definitely ones that are um, quirkier than others or interesting than others. You know, there are ones that drew me in, but man, you know, I'll find some article about some you know, 13th century English parliamentarian, and it doesn't even really interest me that much as a topic, because I don't really care about 13th century England, but I'll think, man, that's incredible someone wrote that, and, um, and I honestly, I really respect it, I really respect that someone took the time to say, well, there's this gap in knowledge, and I'm going to fill it in, you know, while we've been talking, I've been editing this article, super light edit, very small edit, but I'm editing the article on Amor Prohibido, which is a Selena album. You know, Selena, the, the queen of Tejano, of Tejano. Yeah. Um, you know, I edited this article while we've been talking. It's a great article. I Wait, have you've very, been editing very an article while you've been talking? Yeah, yeah, That's I incredible, because you've been very, I would never have guessed that. You've been uh, very, very thoughtful, very well-spoken. How are you editing an article while you talk? That's insane. Well, first of all, I'm talking about myself, so it makes it really easy. And I'm saying a lot of things I've said before. So if anyone are you ever editing? Talk is this like M dash editing, or are you like? Uh... Yes, there you go. Yeah, it's a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah, I saw that someone had had solicited feedback on the article and said, "Hey, is this ready to go?" And so the first thing I do is I say, "All right, well, what about these little guys?" And then one thing I do, one thing I'm adding, which I think is actually genuinely important, is um, this article. Uh, I wanted to make sure that it had alt text or alternative text for images. And that makes the web more accessible for persons who either can't see it all or who, for whatever reason, just can't display images. You know, alt text is something that, uh, that is a substitute for images when you can't see images or display them for some reason. So I'm just ensuring that it has that. And the first thing I saw, the first image, did in fact have that. The second image didn't. I think that's really important. I'm not going to give my stamp of approval to an article that doesn't have alt text um, because I think that's really valuable in making the web accessible. But yeah, it's really easy for me to talk about myself and blather on and on about myself while doing something else because I, that's one thing where I am the world's expert. Yeah. But these are small edits. Some of them are uh, trivial. Some of them I think are really important. And there may be, maybe there's no blind person who's ever going to read this article. That, that may actually happen or who will ever interact with it. Uh, but even if there's not, I still think it's very important to have web accessibility. Well, Justin, a very heartfelt thanks, not just for uh, the time this afternoon explaining all this to me, um, but the work you do. I I'm a true believer in Wikipedia myself, and um, despite that, I've never really um, done a lot of editing of it. Um, and it's people like you that really make the thing work, and I love it, and I think it's an important thing. So, um, 
you know, thank you. Yeah, real pleasure. Thanks for chatting, and thanks for everybody who's listening. I hope that uh, everybody had a pleasant time listening, although um, it's a lot of me. And I hope that anybody who's interested in editing Wikipedia and who thinks they have something to add, uh, if you need some help or you want some guidance, I'll be happy to help you. How can people reach you? How can they get your help? Yeah, well, my username, which will probably be somewhere posted around this uh, podcast or something, is five letters. It's K-O-A-V-F. So uh, Kilo, Oscar, Alpha, Victor, Frank, right? Uh, and you can post to my talk page there. So, yeah, contact you via Wikipedia. Use Wikipedia to reach out to you, and that's probably the best way to do yeah. it, I would imagine. Great. Well, Justin, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Yeah, real pleasure. Thanks again, Jeff. That was a HeadGum Podcast. <laughs>